Hello, everyone. This is Mike Grandinetti, host of the Disruptive Innovation Podcast. I cannot express how excited I am to introduce a very special guest. So Michael Pershka is the CEO, global CEO of Automobili Pininfarina. But much more than that, he's the visionary, the curator, and the force, the driving force behind this remarkable new brand. And we're going to have a lot of time today with Michael to explore in great detail the vision and the goals and the mission and purpose behind Automobili Pininfarina, the successes they've had so far, and where we're going into the future. Michael happens to be at the Los Angeles Auto Show. There's been a lot of very interesting announcements coming out of that event over the last few days that I'm sure many of my listeners have read about. And Michael's going to share his perspective as well on some of the things that he's seen and heard. So, Michael, thank you so much for taking time out of what I can only imagine is an incredibly hectic schedule, meeting with partners and clients, you know, at the auto show. Thank you for taking some time out of your your, uh, schedule to join us today. Very much appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. So, Michael, if you would, right, you've got a long and illustrious career history in the automotive industry, working for great brands like Mercedes and and Audi. Can you talk a little bit about sort of your career and how it aligns sort of with the evolution of the auto industry? And what were some of maybe the highlights that you think are some of the key inflection points that have gotten us to where we are today from an auto industry perspective? Mm-hmm. I think good question, and uh, I think uh, my career, I never planned it this way, so I think a lot of things happen because you are at the right time, at the right moment, and you happen to be out there and and suddenly become part of the change. Um, But I think the most important um, decisions that I took in my career was always to go a little bit against the mainstream. So um, I started my career right in Asia, uh, right in China. Um, So my first experience was actually emerging markets, China and India. And I chose them because I was excited about it. It was not a strategic planning, but I was excited to be part of of new things, of um, changes rather than sitting there in Germany, you know, at the headquarter of a German car company and doing the standard HQ jobs. So I think uh, what did that learn me for all the disruptions that came? I think if you work in, in India and China in the late 90s and early 2000s, you're part of massive changes which happened at that point in the car industry, which were um, unforeseen, like China going for leaps and bounds of growth. Then I basically worked at an um, internet startup company for two years, um, just before the bubble burst, um, on, on the first evolution of the tech, tech revolution and the internet. And uh, I think that helped me a lot, dynamic markets and emerging technologies to always see technology and changes as an opportunity rather as a risk. So I think that which framed my personal mindset in seeing change as an opportunity for something new to be generated and take advantage of that and be a first mover and thereby, you know, having plenty of opportunities of growth, personal growth, company growth, and creating something rather than um, administrating something. And I mean, having worked for large companies, but in smaller and medium setups also helped me to see the best of two worlds. If you're sitting in India and you're running Audi India, you take advantage of a large corporation like Audi and a lot of things which are there at the back end, products, brands, opportunities, resources, but you apply them into a market which is super dynamic. And that is, I always um, thought of myself as being an entrepreneur, so an entrepreneur within a larger corporation, and thereby always thinking slightly different. So do things first, ask for forgiveness later, and not applying the, just the standard rule book and the standard marketing book. And I think that took me all through my career. And I always had the shortest way from Munich to, Re, uh, to Turin was actually via Mumbai, because my stint in India helped me to meet Anand Mahindra, who is the investor behind, behind Automobili Pinifarina. And so I can only say, I, I, if you want to be part of change, you have to, ideally in the early days of your career, be an opportunity in a market a situation where change actually becomes an opportunity. And you need to wholeheartedly embrace it in your personal and in your professional life. 
I think that that's what helped me to always see these opportunities and think entrepreneurial and not try to preserve the status quo. I love it, Michael. So you couldn't be more spot on in terms of the themes of the Disruptive Innovation Podcast, right? And, and change for the vast majority of people is hard. Um, and, you know, I've, I've always distinguished between a very small percentage of the population that don't just deal with change, but they embrace change. They thrive on change. They live for change and those who suffer through it. And so what I love is, you know, you are someone who worked for two very large, well-established brands, but you jumped into the deep end of the pool by volunteering to go to India and China at a time when their middle classes were emerging and their economies were exploding. So I can only imagine the energy, the excitement, the, the radical mind shift you know, and how your mental model had to evolve to deal with that. So it's it's obviously formed you, right? So I love that. And of course, now it sets you up for your your new great adventure, Automobili Pininfarina. And again, you are global CEO. You're head, jointly headquartered in Turin, Italy and in Munich, Germany. And you've got a very big vision for this company. So if you would be so kind as to kind of share that vision and what it was about what you saw in the market that said, you know what, now was the time to create the first ever sustainable luxury automotive company with zero tailpipe emissions. That's a big vision. How did you get there? Well, um, again, I mean, what served me well was I already had a very thorough experience in the auto world, in different markets, different brands. I even worked for Mitsubishi, so I have 10 years plus in Asia. I have 15 years with German car companies. I worked at the wholesale level, at the retail level, at the HQ level. So I, I think I had a lot of um, experiences in very different parts of the business model and the, uh, the value chain. And I think the combination of India, the combination of building markets, the combination of being really a brand customer, a market guy, uh, and then seeing what happened to Tesla starting in 2010, 11, 12, 13, um, I think helped me to see that there is a new window of opportunity. Uh, and the window of opportunity is not just the change of drive train, it's the change of the business model. And it is a point where all traditional brands, especially luxury brands, come to a point where you either have to reinvent yourself or you have to die. And there are companies like Bugatti or Ferrari, I think which are super prestigious brands and I really, really love them, or Lamborghini. But are they ready because of their success, their financial success, to embrace change or are they in, in a mindset of don't rock the boat? So I've been a couple of times to the board uh, at Audi and we presented the benchmark study we did on Tesla and we said, hey guys, we need to embrace electrification. Right. And I saw how difficult it was for board members who were mechanical engineers who grew up with the 8, the 10, the 12th engines being the master class of any car guy being an, an automotive engineer and developing these kind of engines and how skeptical uh, they were about the whole electrification. Yep. And when Arnold Mahindra called me and said, look, Michael, we bought that Pinifarina brand. Uh, would you be interested to do something really new with this brand? Um, you know, I, he didn't need to ask me twice. I, I sat down, I wrote a business plan, I flew to India, I presented it to Anand, and we both were like 95% aligned instantly about making automobile Pinifarina the pinnacle of, of change to the luxury car brand. That's great. So just very quickly, for those of our listeners who don't know about Mr. Mahindra and his extraordinary career, can you briefly describe who he is and how he figures into this this uh, vision? So Anand Mahindra is um, the last family member of the Mahindra Group, which is a 20 billion US dollar turnover group, uh, more than 10 billion market cap. They're the largest SUV builder in, in South Asia. They are by units, the largest tractor manufacturer all over the world, ahead of John Deere and others. And he's a very charismatic businessman on the one hand side. But the second thing, 
he's very committed to sustainability. So he's a, he's the vice chairman of the California Climate Action Summit. He's a member of the board of sustainability at World Economic Forum. And this year he's been elected even to the United Nations Board on Sustainability. So he's a businessman. He owns a conglomerate of businesses. But first and foremost, he's an evangelist that sustainability is economically also viable. And I think his vision plus the heritage of um, Batista Pinifarina and the Pinifarina business plus me and my team in implementing it, I think is a very unique combination where you have vision, where you have provenance, where you have capital, and you have a fully empowered team. And I think that's what drives us every day, that we have a very unique blend of ingredients. I love it. And so you you just articulated for us one one of the classic dilemmas, right? An entrepreneur, as you are, you know, going into your management uh, committee, the management board, and with all of your on-the-ground experience across the entire globe, saying, I'm seeing the future, and the future is 100% electrification of the automobile. And very classic response, no, we don't see it. We're skeptical. We're, we're downright um, resistant to it. And you bring that vision into the marketplace, and you find someone who shares the vision, who, who has the right set of um, skills and values, and of course, then has the capital to fund that vision. So when we, we're going to take a very short break, and when we come back, we're now going to talk about what, in fact, is the vision for Automobili Pinafrina, you know, what it is that you've been able to um, send into the marketplace in the time since you founded the company, and we'll take it from there. So we'll be back in just a short while. So we're back with Michael Pershka, the global CEO of Automobili Pininfarina. And Michael, let's pick up where we left off. So you've you've met Mr. Mahindra, and he's this very rare um, industrialist, again, incredibly charismatic, incredibly suave, fabulously wealthy, and at the same time, a truly deep believer in the importance of environmental stewardship and sustainability. So you now join forces, you have a shared vision, you are going to create the first sustainable luxury brand in the high-performance automobile industry. What does that mean in practice? (laughs) Well, in practice, it means that you start with a lot of ambiguity because you're doing a stunt which nobody has done before. So I think you need to be courageous, you need to be fearless, you need to be immensely stubborn because you should not react to to, uh, drawbacks, you should not react to resistance, and you have to be extremely laser-focused to continue every day to do the things which you firmly believe are the right things, independent of all the external um, turbulences you have. Because you you have multiple stakeholders who will not fully support you because either they're risk averse or they're even jealous, they have failed before, they cannot imagine that somebody else can achieve it. So I think it's it's an extremely ambiguous ambiguous and turbulent and dynamic environment. So if you are not extremely stubborn and like a rock in the sea, persistent on what you firmly believe and where maybe a few like-minded allies continue to walk the path with you like a Navy SEALs team, yes. you will not succeed. Right. Uh, because there are so many people in any of these disruptions, you, you want to walk down a certain road, who will warn you that it will not happen yep. or that's impossible or that you will fail. And I think if you don't have the self-confidence to make it happen and, and convince everybody around you, uh, you're doomed for failure. Absolutely. And and listen, the number of world-class CEOs, executives, companies that have been told that you are crazy, what do you think you're doing? And that, you know, made the trip to countless venture capitalists only to be turned down and to prove everybody wrong, right? These are some of the great stories of entrepreneurship that we all celebrate. And so you're absolutely right. And and so here you are, Um you're in what is 
admittedly a pretty conservative industry, an industry that in many ways, as you said, is kind of locked into its its heritage of internal combustion engines, right? And, you know, there hasn't been a tremendous amount of innovation around business models, around techniques. And so you come in and say, we're going to do some, we're going to do a number of things differently, right? We're going to make this a 100% sustainable vehicle. And we're going to do it not for the great masses, right? Not for the Prius crowd. We're going to do this for the luxury crowd. And Michael, as I shared with you over uh, the last couple of days, right, if you look at the Calvert study, Calvert identified the top 100 sustainable North American companies based on a wide range of ESG criteria. And they did the same for international companies. And what's striking is there's only one company on the entire North American list. It's Tiffany. And there's not a single company and I'm talking about luxury companies now, and there's not a single luxury company on the international list. So you've got the luxury mindset and you've got a, you know, of course there are exceptions like Hernos, the, the coat maker and Stella McCartney has been uh, extremely um, leading edge with regard to sustainability in her fashion brand. But we're not seeing luxury and sustainability naturally linked. And yet you and Mr. Mahindra link them. And on the other hand, you know, you're bringing a 100% uh, change in platform, a complete change in business model. So there were a lot of new ideas that you brought together. So you definitely dialed up the risk curve for sure. And yet you persisted, you, you had confidence in your own vision. And you know, what were some of the key milestones to get to the point where you were actually able to not just announce, but to ship the first product? What, what were some of the, maybe the more significant challenges that you needed to really navigate your way through to get to the point where you're actually selling vehicles commercially? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I have to slice your question, of course, in a couple of yeah. answers. Yeah. Um, so as we speak, I was looking at the Calvert um, valuation criteria, so shareholders, employees, customers, community, and planet. Yeah. So when we talk about a sustainability uh, map of companies, Planet is only one out of four, uh, out of five criteria, um, which doesn't uh, dilute the effect of that list. But I think sustainability, what we mean, is slightly bigger than let's say the, the environmental sustainability. It's also sustainability of results, sustainability of working with the community. Yeah. Um, which doesn't downgrade anything what Tiffany is doing. I think Tiffany is doing a great job, and I have they have fully embraced sustainability and social responsibility in the way what kind of materials they use, how they process it, and um, and, and how they go to market. Um, nevertheless, I think luxury you have to also divide into different categories. So you have automobile as a luxury category. You have um, jewelry and watches, you have fashion, and you have a couple of others, boats, planes, or whatsoever. So I would say, and uh, it should not be taken in the wrong uh, way, but rich people are currently still majorly perceived as being less environmental conscious um, than maybe certain forward-thinking professors or thought, thought leadership personnel. Um, I don't know if it's true or not true. I just met Mark Benioff at Dreamforce, and Mark Benioff is, is is very wealthy, and yet he's driving sustainability very much forward, and he's covered in the Calvert list. I think sustainability has moved from a point where, uh, I know in Germany when we had the Green Party, you know, these were people which were not rich, but by definition they were students, thought provokers, but not necessarily being of the richer milieu. It became more be more from the educated milieus. I think sustainability has grown by its importance and the ESG standards also for the rich people in probably the last 24 to 36 months. And I, I call it the syndrome of a greater Thunberg generation. I think the Friday for Future has put a fire on the many topics, including the rich people rethinking their personal consumption carbon footprint. So why did we go down that way and where are we and what will be hopefully our secret for success? I think first and foremost, we want to be at the forefront. 
We want to be a game changer. We want to get credit for being courageous and being one of the first to stick our neck out and say, we want people to enjoy luxury without the guilt of a substantial carbon footprint. We want that people enjoy our car and love electric cars, fall in love with it, and think, I love it, it's electric, and I'm doing something good for the planet because I'm reducing my carbon footprint. We see that inflection point to come probably in the next 12 to 24 months. When we've been to Pebble Beach in 2018, we've been doomed as an exotic. It's something people were still sniffing their nose and saying electric and luxury and a hypercar are I can't imagine. 12 months later, Pebble Beach 2019, we were already a talking point. Half of the people hated the idea. Half of the people started thinking about why not? So, um, and why? Because the global discussion on footprint, Greta Thunberg, Leo DiCaprio, global warming, are putting a discussion out there where you cannot escape anymore and say, I'm rich, I don't care. If you're rich and you don't care, there will be a social outing happening. People want to be part of that because they cannot afford anymore to not take sustainability as a whole philosophy series on the personal consumption as a company on the company footprint. And I think that if our secret of success is reading that movement and making sure that we don't put lipstick on a pick and say we are sustainable, but develop a wholehearted roadmap and proving points that we will be not an Italian version of Tesla, right. but that we are a wholehearted luxury Italian brand which has fully embraced sustainability, including the carbon emissions as a philosophy and as a mission, That's and be great. hopefully one of the poster boys of that movement. That's great. And and Michael, as a global citizen, someone who has traveled the world, lived all across the world, and who, you know, upon production decided you would allocate a certain number of vehicles to different regions, are you seeing any distinction between the different continents that you sell to? around their their level of um, focus on sustainability? Or, or is there a, a region that is clearly ahead or a region that is clearly behind? Or do you see a more yeah. or less... Yes, please, please share your, your observations. Absolutely. I think you see currently, I mean, a huge divide between talking about sustainability and acting. And the multiple layers, it's the individual, of so a high network and ultra high network individual, the mainstream person on the road, it's the corporate, it's the to the capital, the investment banks, the financial institutions, but it's also and, and first and foremost it's governments. I mean governments drive industrial policies and if a government can start penalizing carbon footprints, you will see that companies and individuals start embracing it. And the the easy policy you see where this has moved is the electrification policy of the Chinese government. Have they done it purely for sustainability reasons? To a certain extent, the air became really bad. Uh, they didn't want to be dependent on IC engine development, and so they, they put that policy in place for many reasons. But you see that electrification, China is getting at the forefront. The other country which you see definitely are following fast is Norway. While Norway still makes a lot of the tax income on oil um, research, they have put a very radical uh, EV policy in place, and one out of two cars in, in Norway registered is already electric. It's followed by Sweden, it's followed by, by Holland or Netherlands. You start seeing elements of that coming in place in Switzerland. Germany is following probably rather slow because of the lobbying of the German car industry. Yes, of course. So I think you see, and then you see countries like Singapore looking at it. Um, I think we countries which are lagging are still probably to some extent the Middle East. Uh, I think they look at it, but they have a dilemma. We're still sitting on oil reserves. And now, of course, when the emerging markets, because they cannot fully embrace and afford maybe the full uh, sustainability movement, but you see selectively solar panels, wind uh, turbines coming up. So definitely, and California 
probably in the forefront in the U.S., but I think there's still a lot of states in the U.S. which are lagging behind. That's so great. You see a huge, huge, huge divide. That's very, very interesting. So we're going to take a very short break, Michael, but when we come back now, we're going to talk specifically about, as you stated, right, in, in a period of less than two years, to be nothing more than an oddity, an idiosyncratic entry at uh, Pebble Beach to being a talking point. And, and I'd love to now get your observations about, you know, what's happening at the LA Auto Show. You know, what are some of the major announcements that you've taken note of that you think are an indicator of where we're heading? So we'll be back in just a moment. All right. So again, here with Automobili Pininfarina Global CEO, Michael Pershke. Pershke having a wonderful discussion about sustainability and about innovation. So, Michael, you're in L.A. at the uh, the big auto show. Um, certainly, as always, lots of major announcements coming out of the event. You know, one of the maybe more hyped announcements is, for the first time in its 55-year-old history, uh, the Ford Mustang, which was introduced by the legendary auto executive Lee Iacocca way back in 1964. Um, they're announcing the Ford Mach-E. And the Ford Mach-E will be a 100% electric vehicle, and it will be in an SUV form factor. From what I've read, it looks like they're going to ship about 50,000 of these vehicles, um, and they will start shipping them toward the end of 2020. So just curious as to your perspective, um, whether or not you think that this is an interesting announcement, what it might do to mainstreaming. And of course, there's a lot of other announcements that are being made, and I'd love to get your take on those as well. I mean, first and foremost, um, I saw there were some mixed uh, messages around the Ford Lounge. I personally think it's, it's a very good movement. Uh, I mean, Ford is still one of the largest car companies in the world. Uh, I think they invented mass-scale production of of, car, uh, of cars on the highway for it. And they coming out ahead of GM, ahead of Chrysler, and ahead of a couple of other players, shows that uh, I think Bill Ford is embracing uh, zero emission and electrification. Um, it's also proven through their uh, investment in Rivian. And I think it's it's a good thing. At the end of the day, um, I think the more players offering electric cars, the more we will see acceptance because then clients will say, oh, this is not a one-hit wonder. This is, uh, this is not a one-hit episode. The car companies are actually walking down that way. I saw the cars, of the, uh, pictures, I saw the lounge on, on YouTube, and I would say I think it's a good thing. I think it helps to take Ford into the year 2020 beyond, uh, or yeah, 2020 and beyond. And I think uh, uh, Bill Ford actually overtook Mary Barra and, 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 and GM by having such a car on offer. So I think in principle it's good. I think also what I saw of the car, it looks pretty neat. I think it's, it's it's a nice car. It looks emotional. And I think that's one of the, of the agendas we also have with Automobili Pinfrina. Um, electric cars started with fairly strange looking cars, not necessarily beautiful like a Prius. So it was for a hygiene factor. And I think what you see more and more is that finally uh, premium car companies like Audi, Mercedes, Jaguar are embracing electrification and bring out cars which look pretty decent. And I would say the Mustang is definitely a decent car. It looks good. And I think it will get people getting more emotional. I think the mission we are on with the Batista is to make people really fall in love with electric cars. Yeah. Um, and I think the more people fall in love with electric cars because of the acceleration, the performance, the look and feel, and becoming a modern classic, something people want to talk about in 20 years, like the Mustang, maybe it's going to be the talked about car in 20 years. It's going to be a modern classic. Um, I think that's going to make a lot of changes because even then the doomsayers will say, shit, you know, it's happening with or without me. I have to join that, that movement. And that's what you see also with a Porsche Taycan. I think right. that's a, a brand Porsche with all respect, beautiful, emotional, and they have taken and embraced electrification and created an emotional product. And I think that's what we need. We that's need great. the proof of concept that it's happening and people start falling in love with electric cars and embrace them. That's great. So let's talk about a car that many people around the world love, the Ferrari. And 
You know, I know that there have been surveys done in Italy where um, the only person that was more popular than the Pope was the great Enzo Ferrari. And, you know, as recently as a few years ago, I had the opportunity to do some consulting at Ferrari. Um, and there was a very clear line in the sand. We will never do electric cars and we will never do hybrids. We are Ferrari and, um, you know, we're all about the internal combustion engine. And of course, with the passing of uh, Sergio Marchioni and the the appointment of uh, Mr. Camilleri, many things have changed. Now, you have a very interesting um shared partner with Ferrari in the in the form of the Pininfarina Design House, one of the world's premier design houses across any industry and certainly the premier design house in the auto industry. And there was an incredible partnership for many, many decades between Mr. Ferrari and Mr. Pininfarina and their respective companies. So can you share a little bit of the history? Because there came a point, of course, where um, I think, you know, Ferrari made some decisions that freed up Pina Farina to become your partner. I think it's a fascinating story. I'd love to have you share that with our listeners. Yeah, I mean, first of all, let's start and, and spend 20 seconds on the history of uh, Ferrari and Pina Farina. Enzo and Batista met back in 1955. Both of them have been very uh, strong personalities. And it was actually uh, Andrea who took comments and to meet halfway in between because nobody wanted to travel to the other place. And then meeting created history, 64 designs. So it, it, it was a marriage over two generations. And I think that marriage um, needs a lot of respect and duration. But yet, as you rightly said, there was an inflection point in 2014 Ferrari decided to go completely by their own and insource completely the design and not work with companies like Bertone or Pinivrina on the outside of the car anymore. They use those on services, but they're not branded anymore. And that was the inflection point which allowed Pinifrina, SPA, and Adam Mahindra to float a new business, which is ultimately Pinifrina. Uh, so, yes, I would never say anything bad about Ferrari because they're still like an extended family. Yet, I think what you're describing is the dilemma of success. And uh, what you, you're talking about is disruption. I think disruption and disruptors tend normally not to be companies who are hugely successful with the current business model. Why? Don't rock the boat and don't change the running system if it's successful. So Ferrari is making a lot of margins with combustion engine. Uh, Ferrari is very safe in its environment because they have collectors, they have their customers, and I think that's why they embrace the change on the uh, on the com uh, combustion engine towards electrification. I would say fairly step by step. I wouldn't say conservative, but probably they're not embracing it. But uh, let me go one side step and not talk about Ferrari for a second, but talk about Ducati. When we went to Pebble Beach 2018, and I met uh, at that time Stefan Winkelmann um, at Bugatti, uh, I think they could never have imagined to even talk about an electric Bugatti. Uh, we now share around about 50% of our distribution partners of automobile industry now also Bugatti partners. Wow. And I know they called in the distributors uh, at some point and said, we're going to do the second Bugatti. We want to do something after the Chiron. Uh, and we're thinking about doing it hybrid. And then all the partners which are representing us said, hey guys, why are you so uncourageous? Look at Automobili Pinifarina. They embrace electrification. Your second car should be electric. And if you check out the headlines today and yesterday, Bugatti confirmed that the next car they're going to do is a four-seater fully electric. So um, what I'm trying to say at the end of the day you know, you can be as conservative and as non-disruptive as you want to be. If you see that your your opportunities are melting down because of these external changes, either you have to embrace them or you have to die like the dinosaurs. Yep. So the question is, how long can you avoid disruption to a point that it becomes an existential problem? If you have no electric cars for China, there might be a risk at one point. China says no more ICE cars on these roads or only 200% taxes. If you're not prepared for that moment with a plan B, you're out of business. And so I think any car company who wants to remain successful in the long run and wants to serve the largest 
EV market in the world and the largest luxury market in the world, you have to be prepared with an answer for China. The best correct. answer will have to be electric. You like it, you don't like it. So that's where automobile pinifrine is ideally positioned. I'm traveling next week to China and I meet with a lot of dignitaries, large corporations, luxury traders, media companies to position our car to be at the forefront of that change. And if any of my competitors are slow, I'm very happy because it gives me that window of opportunity. I love it. So these these are very much the entire, this is the core theme of this entire disruptive innovation series. Companies become victims of their own success. They are unwilling to cannibalize their own businesses. They see the world through a, a, a very distorted lens because of that. And, and Michael, one of the things I take away, right? So we're sitting here in a recording studio in Boston as we uh, have our discussion tonight. And right across the street from us is a flagship Patagonia store. And of course, you know, you can't mention the word sustainability without giving due respect to Patagonia. And the example that you just shared about your experiences with Bugatti, right? Patagonia, by setting an example, right? People thought that Yvonne Chouinard was crazy. The fact that you could use a business to set an example and to, you know, help educate the world on the importance of protecting the environment. And from their position as a first mover, they influenced over a thousand companies to use organic cotton as a way to, you know, eliminate the use of formaldehyde, which was harming water tables and, and making employees very sick. And what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, the very act of, of taking such a, a, a courageous stand, you know, you've influenced already world-class heritage brands like Bugatti to maybe question their own business model and their own product mix and send that message into their ecosystem, right? And so this is the virtuous cycle that's just getting started now. The flywheel is beginning to spin. And, and I love that. Absolutely love it. So when we come back, we're going to wrap up by talking about the commercial experiences and successes that you and the company have had to date and then where you see this going into the future. So we're going to take a very short break and we'll be right back. All right. So we're here with Michael Perska, the global CEO of Automobile Farina. Michael, this has been a great discussion. Really appreciate the opportunity to dig in deep. Why don't we now talk a little bit about your business specifically? So you had a a number of incredibly successful events like the Geneva Auto Show and the the coverage was remarkable. The, you know, the the reception amongst, you know, the experts was just extraordinary. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how the first year, year and a half have gone, what sales are like to the extent that you can talk about that, what you've learned along the way, assumptions that may be you've had challenged and you've had to rethink uh, as a starting point? Well, I mean, I mean we discussed at the beginning already. I mean, you go for very dynamic times. And as an entrepreneur, CEO, founder of such a business, you have to make certain choices. And what I learned again, I mean, I had many instances over my corporate career, but I learned again, it's super, super crucial that you get together with the right Navy field team to go on a mission. So if you want to change something to an extent real, we want to change the world here, you don't look for employees. You look for people who are voluntarily coming on a mission to change the world and go against the mainstream. And I think that's super critical. Girl, you, you have to hire for attitude, not for skills. Of course, skills is a hygiene factor, but all the people are hired who have the right attitude, they help me every day to pull that forward. I say, you have to hire the Arabian horses. You know, those guys who run by themselves, you just give them a little bit of direction, you treat them well, and they help you to pull that, that horse carriage forward at full steam. I think that's, that's the most important thing. Get the right people with the right attitude. Forget processes and all that stuff and, and, and org charts. Get the people together who share the same mission, who are wholeheartedly into that from the bottom of their heart and make sure they get the right environment 
which allows them to be successful. It makes your life so much easier to see you. And, 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 and try not to hire the wrong people. If you're hiring the wrong people who are too corporate, they will break down the system because they are not able to deal with the ambiguity because they don't see the goal. It's like everybody asks, uh, you, you know that story, everybody asks Mrs. Disney, uh, which they told her, look, it would have been so nice for your husband to see uh, Disneyland getting ready. And she answered, look, he saw it all the way through. I think you have to have people who have that imagination to see where we want to be in three years already today. And we don't get destroyed by 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 um, pushbacks. I think that's for me the first and foremost. Of course, you have to have a strategic plan. You need to be consistent on executing the plan if it's the right one and not change it every day because otherwise people get confused. You as a CEO have to be the rock in the sea. And what we saw so far is everything we did, every time we did it, people were saying, you're crazy. You're doing something wrong. You shouldn't do that. And whenever we did it, suddenly we saw followers. Whether it was how we went to market, I just got a mail from from a comp- uh, from a client of ours about a competitor copying what we did this year in Pebble Beach and next year because they felt intrigued what we did to them. So I think... Um, when you are a game changer, you're confirmed that you're a game changer when your competition starts copying you. Then you see you must be right because they get suddenly jealous. They suddenly, uh, you know, feel that you're getting ahead of their game. So I think these are things, learnings you have to have. But first and foremost, it's the people, it's the vision, it's the mission. It's every day fighting for the same thing and having like-minded people being by your side. People are willing to jump off the airplane with a parachute and make their way through the jungle for the joint mission. I think that's for me the absolute elementary thing. And then, of course, finding the funds, the investors behind you who believe in you and trust you beyond the next spreadsheet or a PowerPoint presentation. I love it. And Michael, this is this is essentially a master class in entrepreneurship. And what I love about this is, you know, because there are so few brand new greenfield automobile companies being created that I'm sure most of my listeners don't think of an entrepreneurial in the words of, you know, entrepreneurship when it comes to new auto companies. But what you've described is just a classic tech startup. Team is first, aligned vision, right? Everyone is aligned around a purpose. They come with their hearts and their souls ready to do battle every day because they believe in something that's transcendent. And everything you do from that point on is about building from that core. And of course, the alignment of investors that believe in you, that have the same level of courage that you do, that share the vision that you do, right? Magic happens and and have confidence in the face of a lot of naysayers and in the face of a lot of adversity. So I love it. Let me ask you one last question. So you talked about wanting people to fall in love with your cars, you know, with sustainable cars. And of course, a lot of people wouldn't see Ferraris if they didn't watch Formula One. Um, Talk a little bit about Formula E and, you know, what you think that will do for the exposure of your brand and uh, electric vehicles in general. Any any thoughts on that? Absolutely. I I think uh, very clearly, I'm a very big fan of Formula E where it will be. I think it's it's going through stages, and I think it's not perfect today, but it has already a, a lot of strengths. Um, I think Formula E is a much better version of enjoying motorsport than Formula One ever was. Formula One was built for brands, and it was built by Bernie Ecclestone, basically from the manufacturers and the advertising brands. It was never built for the fans. Formula E is totally built around fans because it comes to your city. It doesn't ask you to pay an expensive ticket and come to a racetrack. It brings the racetrack in front of your doorstep in London, in Hong Kong, in Paris, in Berlin. So that's first and foremost. It makes EV racing performance accessible to families on a Saturday or Sunday. A very, very different approach. Secondly, Formula E is much more connected also to the digital space. You can fan boost your favorite driver and team and actually thereby influencing that they get some boost on the racetrack. So it's an online-offline blend. And um, my my message to 
to Alejandro Agaric, who owns the series, would be, can we find a way where we blend in Formula E with e-gaming? Because Formula E today still has a lot of gladiators who come from retired Formula One drivers. I think the ultimate breakthrough for Formula E will happen when we have the first Thai Ninja, which is the most famous e-gamer, making its cockpit through e-gaming into a real offline Formula E race. Mm. And, and, and we opening e-gamers the chance to experience Formula E as an offline online race format and create something for them they can resonate for on the virtual world, but love also the offline experience. I think that, that's going to be magic. And I believe Formula E is one out of three building stocks which will make ultimately formula, uh, electrification sexy. It's, it's the cars like the Batista and the serial cars which are coming. It's Formula E. It's, of course, Tesla to some extent, which kind of created the first acceptance. And it's markets like China who embrace it in Norway. And I think the tipping point, the inflection point will come. And then I think we will see mass adoption that people really come to the racetrack and watch Formula E as an experience, not only as a competition, but as an experience, because it's fun to watch and it's fun to listen. And people say, oh, it, it sounds boring. I say Formula E in the sixth season this year sounds already pretty much like pot race from Star Wars. And I think the younger generation knows Star Wars. And you see your gladiators, you, you want to know who's your Luke Skywalker on his race car and he's going to win it. And as I said, when we cross the bridge between Formula E and e-gaming, I think then we will not hear a lot, lot about Formula One in three to five years from now, because the, the carbon footprint will become unaccepted, socially unaccepted. And we have today already more car companies competing in Formula E than their leftovers in Formula One. Wow, what an incredible vision and what a wonderful way to end this discussion. Michael Perska, the global CEO of Automobili Pininfarina, but much more than that, the driving force, the curator, and the visionary. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this extended discussion. Um, thank you once again for taking time out of your incredibly hectic schedule at the Los Angeles Auto Show. I wish you a successful rest of the show and a safe travel back home to Europe. Thank you, Michael. So that was a really great discussion with Michael Pershka of Pina Farina. And I just want to share a couple of fairly recent announcements in the news that I think are very related and that will just complement some of the discussions that we had. The first thing I want to talk about is the fact that uh, leave it to the Americans to influence the rest of the world in terms of their automotive buying habits. So it turns out that a full third of all cars today that are sold in Europe are SUVs, sport utility vehicles. Now, they're not the big monolithic vehicles like the Cadillac Escalades and the Chevy Suburbans. The Europeans view those as incredibly large and ugly. They're largely crossovers like the Volvo XC40 and the Peugeot 3008. But, you know, 200 million SUVs are driving around the world today. And of course, they're adding weight to the platform and they're driving a higher level of CO2 emissions. So the timing of companies like Automobili, Pinafrin and others to deliver electrified, 100% electrified, zero tailpipe emission vehicles could not be coming at a better time. So let's talk about Ferrari. So again, Ferrari, its heritage is in racing, specifically Formula One racing. We're doing this episode at a time when there's an incredibly well-reviewed movie out, Ford versus Ferrari, that's playing in the mega theaters as we speak. Um, the epic battle between Carroll Shelby and Ford taking on Ferrari in Formula One. But under the leadership of Louis Camilleri, that is the new CEO of Ferrari, the replacement of the, the great late Sergio Marchionne, um, they are now dabbling in hybrids. They've released their SF90, and it's the first plug-in hybrid. And what's remarkable is that they are projecting that three of every five future Ferraris will be hybrids. They are projecting their first 100% electric vehicle to arrive in the market somewhere between 2025 
and 2030. That's a remarkable thing that it could be as long as 10 years. But again, Ferrari has a very high bar to jump over, right? Because the battery in an EV is such an incredibly important part of the vehicle. Um, they're going to have to really think about engineering their way to a point of differentiation. So Ferrari is finally embracing hybrids and electric vehicles. I think that's great. The company that started it all, Tesla, announced very recently that they will be creating their next gigafactory in, of all places, Germany, and that the facility will be near the airport in Berlin and that they will also be designing or setting up a design center somewhere in the region as well. So, of course, Germany is renowned for its engineering talent. And although the engineering talent is largely centered around internal combustion engines, um, I think it's uh, another indication of the, the globalization of EVs, higher performance EVs, um, and along with their gigafactories in the U.S. and China, I think it's an interesting um, point that we can tie directly to discussion that we had with Michael. And then finally, what you may or may not have picked up in the discussion with Michael, uh, even Porsche um, is projecting to ship their first ever 100% electric vehicle, uh, the Taycan, which is roughly going to be priced at about $100,000 to $105,000. And we'll also be shipping sometime uh, toward the end of next year, as will be the Ford Mustang Mach-E. So we're seeing a lot of movement with EVs from luxury brands, uh, what I'll call, uh, to the extent that you can call Tesla a traditional EV brand, um, and also from, you know, sort of the high-end brands like Porsche that are, are more mainstream here in the United States and other parts of the world. So that's what we've got for this week. Thanks, as always, for listening. We always welcome your feedback. Uh, please let us know your thoughts on our podcast, any questions that you've got for us, or any suggestions on topics that would be of most interest to you. Again, Mike Grandinetti for the Disruptive Podcast Innovation, signing off. <laughs>